0: I'd like you to take a Bible and turn today to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, So we continue our study uh, briefly today before we come to the Lord's table, Nine, page 960 in your pew Bibles. Seems like about uh, every other year I get a two-week case of laryngitis, and I think I'm at the front of it, but maybe not. We're in a section of this letter by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in the city of Corinth, which gives them instruction about what should and should not take place in their public gatherings. They are what we would call their worship services. And this instruction uh, in 1 Corinthians began in chapter 11. So if you've been with us for the past several months, we went through chapter 11 and chapter 12, and then chapter 13, the chapter about love, which primarily he's talking about in corporate gatherings, the main, the main thing should be love. And then in, in chapter 14, a few weeks ago, we looked at the first half of the chapter, and he's dealing with the subject of speaking in tongues and prophecy in, in, the, in the church gathering. And I don't, I don't plan to get into the definitions of that today. If you want to go back and listen, you can do so online, or I gave more attention to that. But he's going to uh, address that here in the last half of the chapter, but we're going to look at some other points, points of emphasis. So beginning in verse 28, if you'll follow along with me, hear God's word through the end of the chapter. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or, at the most, three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says." If there is anything they they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues but all things should be done decently and in order let's pray together our father we have much confusion today about worship and as did our brothers and sisters in corinth we pray you'd give us greater understanding that we might come before you in humility regularly and we pray in christ's name amen Today in America, there's a lot of emphasis placed on where we worship. There are great preferences among professing Christians as to church buildings, whether historic, and formal, or whether it should feel like a warehouse. About heat and air, about audiovisual, whether pews or chairs or dark or bright. And I can honestly say that in the first century, the place where they gathered was not much of a point of emphasis at all. Early believers met in homes, and then sometimes they met outside. In the New Testament, when we come to Acts chapter 2, it speaks of the very large church in the city of Jerusalem meeting in a public place, the outer court of the temple. And then they would meet in smaller groups in homes. So for the most part, early churches, such as the church at Corinth, were dependent on members who owned large houses to provide a place for them to gather. And even when there were several meetings in one city, the Christians had the sense of being one church through their organization. Toward the end of the second century, we have references in history to buildings being used specifically for churches. But it was not until Constantine and the fourth century came that the great period of building church buildings began so the the place was not even given uh, really any acknowledgement we have in instruction from scripture now there was some confusion in Corinth over the attention being given to certain gifts in worship primarily speaking in tongues and prophecy and as we looked at the beginning of chapter 14, <coughs> chapter 14 a few weeks ago we found a principle that's stated over and over. In verse 5, verse 12, verse 17, and verse verse, uh, 26, let all things be done for edification, for building up. The idea of edification is the idea of constructing a building. And so when in verse 26 says, let all things be done for building up, And when verse 40 says all things should be done decently in order, these things are not contradictory, they are complementary. Now some of you, I imagine here, have built a house, or you had a house built where you live now. Imagine, Imagine showing up at a building site, and no one has a plan, no one has a blueprint, and there are workers, there are construction workers standing around, so someone says, well, you, you're a carpenter. Start start making a frame. Start nailing some boards together. Hey, you, you're a plumber. Why don't you put some pipes over there? You dig a trench for those pipes to go in, and, and you dig a trench where we can pour a foundation. I mean, that would be complete chaos, and any building that would be produced would practically be worthless. And so when Paul says that we should do these things decently in order and that it should be for the purpose of building up, it's the idea of constructing a building, that when we come together to worship, it's mutual edification. We know from chapter 11 that the church was having special problems with disorder in their public meetings. And the reason behind it was certain people were using their gifts primarily prophecy and speaking in tongues, not to build up one another, but to exalt themselves. So they were using worship for self-exaltation, self-edification. So what I want to do for just a few moments as we prepare to come to the Lord's table is just walk through the passage. Verse 26 begins, What then, brothers, when you come together? Now that's the phrase for when you gather corporately, when you assemble when you assemble, it's an official meeting. It's not just, let's come together and eat a meal, though they would eat meals together. It's to come together like this. There was an intention. We're going to gather. This is our, our public gathering, our, our weekly gathering on the Lord's Day to worship him. So that's when they use the term, when you come together. It's an official coming together. But notice he doesn't say, if you come together. This is very important. It is assumed that believers will gather for worship. Of course, there are times we're providentially hindered. Of course, there are times of illness and deeds of necessity and mercy. Of course, there are people that work in hospitals and places that that are precluded often from being in, in times of worship. George Barna heads up Barna Research. And for years now, probably 30 years, Barna Research has studied all sorts of things, but primarily they study religious trends, church trends around the world and especially in America. And they produce an annual report and it's called the State of the Church. So the other day I read their annual report for 2016, the State of the Church in America. Now much to my surprise, it said that in America three of the population would say that they are Christian. 73% of Americans would say, yes, I'm a Christian. 20% claim no faith at all in anything. 6% would identify with other faiths, like Islam or Buddhism or Judaism or Hinduism. And then 1% are unsure. So the vast majority, 73%, would say they're Christian. However... When they introduced one more question, it changed that 73% to 31% of those claiming to be Christians. The one question was, do you attend a church service at least once a month? When they asked that question, the number dropped down to 31%. Because of the 73%, the majority said no. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So of those who claim to be a Christian, but when you tack on and attend a church service at least once a month, the number is 31%. So we are living in a time that that needs to hear what Paul was saying. When you come together, you should come together. You should gather for corporate worship. Now this is a trend, at least here in the South and even in Macon. It's been going on for a few years, and that is lowering of attendance in our churches and uh, we don't have as many people attend worship now as we did four or five years ago but the membership stays up or increases and I've talked to pastors of other denominations here in Macon and I say tell me about the attendance at your worship services and I remember one Methodist pastor he said attendance is up I mean uh, membership is up attendance is down he said this is it's really a national trend it's not just regional. Uh, I don't know what to could attribute it to. Uh, maybe it's the freedom we have to travel. Maybe it's our affluence where we can take more trips on long weekends. Maybe it's going to see relatives out of town. Maybe it's the lack of understanding of the purpose of the Lord's Day and the purpose of corporate worship. It may be all of those things. But Paul definitely assumed that the Christians at Corinth, and it should be applied for us today, would come together. Now he says, when you come together, he says, each one, every one of you there. Now don't picture a, a room with several hundred in it. Uh, picture a large house, perhaps, that's, that's full. Maybe there are 80 to 100 people. Maybe there are 50 people there. I'm not sure, but he's saying, when they came together, everyone has something to contribute. A hymn a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So their worship was highly participatory. Ours should be highly participatory. When we take our you say, Well well, I'm just sitting here. You and the you the pastors do all the talking. So, well, no. You look at the affirmation of faith, you look at the prayers, you look at the, the scripture reading. I think we participate we can be passive toward that. I can kind of tune out. I can sing and not think about what I'm singing. I can listen to the pastor pray rather than pray along with him. Uh, I can uh, read the words of something and not really pay attention. I, I think it takes very, it, it takes a lot of intentionality. It takes a lot of concentration to participate, and we all should. Worship should be participatory. It's not passive. So they came together. And Paul said all this should be used for what? For the building up of themselves? No, for one another. Verse 26, the latter part. Then in 27 and 28, he addresses again the speaking in tongues. And he allowed for it, but he puts a limit on it. And the Corinthians seemed particularly fascinated and even enamored with this gift of tongues. To an excess, more so than probably other New Testament churches, and some think that it was because they came out of pagan worship, where there was the speaking in tongues in their pagan worship. So Paul allows for it, but he put limits on it. Rather than 15 people all at once speaking in tongues, he said, let two, or at the most three, and there has to be an interpreter. Now, the first thing that you ought to notice there is this was not some uncontrollable phenomenon. I won't ask you to raise your hand, given your church backgrounds or where you're from, but some of us have been in meetings where people have suddenly acted like they were slain in the spirit, and they had these uncontrollable behaviors, spasms or speaking in tongues, as though they could not do anything to stop it. What he's addressing here is very controllable. The person is very much in their sound mind. Now, having a disabled son who's 20 now and has grown up in the school system here, Barbara and I, like some of you, have had the very um, sobering situation of having classmates of his die. Children's funerals are always a very sobering thing. So we went to the funeral years ago of a little boy named Malik, and it was, he had, he had died, and he was a classmate of our son. And we went to the funeral service, and we were there with several of the teachers and staff of the school. Uh, uh, and the service was very charismatic, very Pentecostal. And I remember a woman who was some kind of officer in the church, like a deacon or pastor or something. She had come from Atlanta to be part of this big service twice a bit there were hundreds of people there and during the service during some of the singing she she kind of laid down in one of the aisles and was like in this spasm and i i'm not trying to sound condescending but i thought that's not what paul says in first corinthians 14 this is not some uncontrollable phenomenon this is a this is very much in control of yourself and so he says let two or three speak and then there must be interpretation are you with me I'm just trying to tell you what the passage is saying. Then in verses 29 and following, he he moves from tongues, he talks again about prophecy. Rather than a bunch of people prophesying, he says keep it to two or three. And here's the key part. What they say should be weighed, verse 20, 29, I mean, which means tested or evaluated. So let's imagine we're in this gathering. We're in this large house and someone says, I have a word from God. All right, what is it? Well, we know that King David said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He making me lie down in green pastures, and so forth and so on. I think that has application for us today, that we as a church in Corinth should do this. So there was the prophecy. You get the idea, it wasn't saying in 1999 something will happen. Invest your money in this, because that stock will be worth a lot, or that horse will win that race on a certain day. All right. It's talking about speaking truth. So now they are to evaluate it. They are to test it. Does this glorify God? Does this fit in with the other scripture we know? Does the speaker have love? Or does the speaker have a wrong motive in saying this? Does this edify the church? So there would be leaders in the church that would test what had been said. And they would test it on the spot. So he says... Only let two or three do this, and it has to be tested. Then in verses 30 to 32, he urges self-control in all manifestations of the Spirit. And that it should be for, that all should learn, it says in verse 31, and all be encouraged. Then we come to verses 33 and following, about the women being silent. And he begins by saying, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. In other words, this is not just for Corinth. This was not just for Ephesus. He's saying, in all the churches. This was to be the normal. What does it mean? Is this some gag rule that when a woman entered into the house where they were going to worship, she was to button her lip and not say anything? We know it can't mean that. A basic rule of interpreting the Bible is to compare Scripture with Scripture. And already three chapters earlier, in chapter 11, he had said women could pray and prophesy. So he can't mean that no words were to come out of their mouths, if it's to be consistent with Scripture. So then, what is he saying? The earliest interpretation I heard of this passage was from a friend of mine in seminary who had heard it from a professor, was that in the first century churches, following the jewish pattern of the day that the men and women would sit in separate areas in the room and during a teaching if a woman had a question she would out, shout it out to her husband hey joe what did he mean by that i don't think he's right or whatever and so Paul, according to that interpretation, Paul was saying, don't do that. It's disruptive to the service. The women should be silent, not screaming out questions or shouting out questions during the, during the, the gathering. Let them do that at home. But I don't think that's the proper interpretation. And I have a stack of books on 1 Corinthians. I put a few references in there, but a very few in the outline. But this was the explanation that made the most sense to me and seems to fit with the passage. And that follows another rule of biblical interpretation, which is context is everything. And the context right here has to do with the weighing of prophecy, the testing of what had been said. So my understanding of this is that it's consistent with other New Testament passages which put the major responsibility for teaching doctrine and doctrinal purity in the early church on the shoulders of the men, particularly the elders, we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So when the prophecies were weighed, when they were tested, when they were evaluated, apparently some women were interjecting, asking questions, perhaps even challenging the teachings, the rulings that were being weighed in on the prophecies, And in that cultural context, when married women normally would not even speak to a man who was not her husband, it could bring shame on her husband in that setting because she might be challenging that other man or even her husband himself, which would be dishonorable and shameful in that setting. And so he says, let her ask the questions at home. Now that makes the most sense to me with the sense of the passage. And it's very easy to get caught up with, Art exactly what does this mean and miss the application for us today? What do I mean by that? Let me speak to you men. Do you that are married or will be married at some time in the future, do you love and know the scriptures well enough to answer the questions from your wife and children about the Bible. I think it's sad to say, in too many Christian homes, if a child were to say, Daddy, how can God be three in one at the same time? His response will be a brilliant and insightful go ask. It's the wife who has the answers. Now, this in no way is limiting women's theological studies. I am married to the best theologian I know, and I'm not saying that because I think she's here. She's got a much better handle, especially on the sovereignty of God and suffering in certain areas, and she has read more and listened to more biographies and everything else, and so my knowledge will not exceed hers in certain things. So it's not saying the wife should not give answers. But the husband should be the leader in this area. Now, and many of us, we became married, and we became married though it happened. We got married, and, and she had been a Christian longer than we had. She knew more than we did, uh, us men, uh, was more committed to Christ than we were, perhaps, but we should be such that, answer, that questions can be answered with respect that I think you will know, so I'm going to ask you. And, and often it's easy to focus on, art. what does it mean the women to be silent and say, okay, uh, what does it mean the, women, the men should answer questions? We ought to be blazing the trail in that sense. Okay, we're here for communion. Very briefly, the next... Passage, 36-38, Paul reaffirms his apostolic authority. He's, He's essentially saying these things are a command from God. And Paul was not an egomaniac. Paul was not threatened by other people. He's saying, I'm called as an apostle. What I'm telling you is from God. And then last of all, he gives that principle, verse 40, that people say is the favorite verse of Presbyterians. Let all things be done decently and in order. Usually we don't know what all has come before that. He's talking about corporate worship. He's talking about doing these things so that they have the greatest impact on believers and, as he has addressed earlier, also on unbelievers. I want to just say this, last word. When we gather, when we come together and we worship God through the elements he's given us, of prayer and his word and and praising him and affirming our faith and, and the taking of vows and the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism and so forth. It is a humbling thing that we do. We don't do many things in our culture where we humble ourselves. But even though, I mean, if, my, if I had my preference, I would have kneeling benches in here so that we could kneel and express our, our humility before God, uh, the, the greatness of God. Our pews aren't wide enough. I have a feeling I would crack, everybody would crack their skulls on the pew in front of them if they tried to kneel in here. But it's humbling. We humble ourselves before him. We come to the Lord's table, it's humbling. I don't know how many of you watched the uh, series on Vietnam that's been on Georgia Public Broadcasting. For, it concluded a few weeks ago. It's a 10-part, it's a new 10-part series by Ken Burns and others. Each episode of the 10 lasted two hours. I watched all of them. I watched 20 hours' worth, and I've gone back and watched some of them Twice. And the final two episodes had an emotional impact on me I was not prepared for. Yes, I'm that age, so I can remember so much of what was being talked about. But what stood out to me was when there were clips, video clips of the 600 or so POWs that came back to America. When they got off the plane, several came down the steps, this is when they would be out on the tarmac, Plainwood land. They'd come down the steps and immediately knelt down and kissed kiss the ground. Home sweet home. Now why would somebody take their lips and, and your mouth and you want things clean and kiss a dirty tar- tarmac? Because they knew where they had been. And now they knew where they were. And they were grateful. You know what enables us to, to humble ourselves before God and worship Or why we don't humble ourselves is when we don't realize where we've been. That we were prisoners in Satan's prison. And God has delivered us. He has delivered us now to his kingdom of light. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that, that you would, first of all, rule in our hearts that if we are here today and we don't know anything about worship because we don't know you, that that our trust would be in Christ as our Redeemer. We pray as a church that you would enable us individually and corporately to worship you in a way that's in accord with Scripture, but, but also glorifies you and edifies your body. And do so now as we come to this sacrament that you have ordained, the Lord's Supper. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.